0: Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ammo our chat. My name is Linda Sissler, and with me tonight is my co-host, Blanche McAllister-Harris, and our guest, special guest this evening is Joseph McGurl, and we'll be talking with Joe in a little bit here, but I want to go through a couple things uh, before we get started. Our next show will be August 15th with Jennifer McChristian, and uh, Jennifer will be our last uh, live show that we'll be doing in the weekend with the Masters series. And then we'll have like a two-week break, and we're going to actually um, go live on air out in San Diego at the conference, and hopefully all of our artists will uh, join us at that time. We'll probably be broadcasting between um, 4 and 6 Pacific time, and um, we'll send out a, a message to everyone so that everyone knows that. And when I schedule the shows, you'll actually see them on the the homepage for the Blog Talk Radio Um uh, Artist Mentors Online show page, so keep an eye out for that, for that news, and then we're leading up to those actual conferences, what we're going to do is re-air all of the interviews that we did, so if you're going to the conference, that's a good way to get yourself psyched up and ready for the conference, and um, while you're packing or whatever, listen to those re-airing of the shows, and if you're not going to be at the, the conference, it'll be a good way to just kind of visit again with those that will be instructing, and then when I have them live on the air out in San Diego, you know, we can try to build on the uh, information that was given in those interviews and talk to them a little bit about how the workshops are going and and things like that. Um, As I said, we have Joe McGurl with us this evening, and um, we'll get Joe in here in a second, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about as well and mention for our friends uh, over. At Interwe an American Artists is that they will be celebrating their seventy fifth anniversary in a big way with four horse um, historic excuse me art competitions with more than uh, ninety seven hundred dollars um, in cash prizes and the opportunity for winning for the winning artists to have their work displayed on the magazine their seventy fifth anniversary exhibition uh, magazine and that will take place at the the exhibit will take place at the Gundy in New York City on, in April of 2013. So there's an information on this and there, a press release that you can read out on the AMMO blog. And the deadlines are fast approaching. you got till October 8th to enter these, and they're looking for um, at least 25 artists that will be selected, um, and it says, or more. So they may actually go for more artists in the ex- exhibition. And the prizes include... Um, Being in that exhibition in in April at the Salmagundi Club, and I believe I read somewhere that you may even get on, yep, here it is, on the uh, cover or in the issue of American Artist Magazine. So your work will be in the magazine as well as in the exhibition, so make sure that you check that out. Grand prize is $1,000, first place is $500 in cash, and and, uh, second place is $300 in cash. Third place is $200 in cash. They'll also be having some honorable mentions. There are three other contests as well in addition to this one, and I'm not going to go into all of those, but if you're interested, the MO blog out at artistmentorsonline.com is where you'll find that press release. So go check that out. And then we're actually going to jump right into the show at this point. I'm going to bring in Blanche. Hi, Blanche. How are you doing this evening? Hey, Linda. I'm I'm Doing well. How about you? I'm doing okay. I uh, got to paint a couple times this week in between everything else that I'm trying to get done, so that worked out real well. How about you? Yeah. Um, well, I'm getting ready to display my work in a, in a new gallery in Charlotte, so I've been getting getting that together to, to take to the gallery in the, in the next few weeks, so uh, that's been keeping me busy. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. I'm excited to have a new, new place. Yeah, that, and that's that's exciting. I've, I'm happy for you. That's, you didn't tell me about this. I'm surprised. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, new development. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, I want to talk a little bit about Joe's background. Um, he's been referred to as one of the acknowledged leaders in the current American Landscape School, Stephen Doherty, who is the editor of Plain Air Magazine, former editor of American Artist Magazine, considers him, and this is a quote, one of the most gifted of contemporary artists. And that's the end of the quote. And then there's, um, this is actually confirmed by his exhibitions in several important museum shows and successful relationships with some of the country's leading galleries and inclusion, inclusion in a number of magazine articles and books. His father, James, was a muralist, And another mentor of his was Ralph Rosenthal, who was a teacher at the Boston Museum of Fine Art. His father and Ralph were both his early mentors. And then Joe graduated from the Massachusetts College of Art, and he also studied in England and Italy. And Joe's paintings are often seen in relationship to the great 19th century luminous painters, but with a thoroughly modern approach to style and subject. For him, the process rather than the product is the most important part of a painting. For this reason, his large studio paintings are developed from sketches painted on location. Rather than relying on photography, this method gives him the freedom to create paintings based on his imagination, memory, and his sketches. So, Joe, welcome.
1: Thank you, and thanks for inviting me to talk with you, and thank you to all the listeners out there for giving me some of your time. I hope that uh, you'll enjoy this discussion, and maybe you'll find some of what we talk about useful.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm um, very excited to hear about um, you, you using your imagination and memory and everything to create and design your paintings. As I think that's such an important um, aspect of of painting and something that I'm kind of playing with and and trying to get away from using more photo reference. So we'll be asking you a lot of questions in regard to that. And I think Blanche, you um, actually have a, a question you want to ask. Yeah, it's um it's about Joe's first workshop, which is an indoor session called uh Indoor Landscape Workshop Plain Air Studio. Um and Joe, you mentioned the book Secret <laughs> Knowledge by David Hockney And that you'll be doing a critical analysis of this book. Can you, can you tell us why this book is so important to you?
1: Sure. Um well I heard about this book maybe ten years ago and mm-hmm. um I heard some of the theory sort of secondhand, and I guess I believed it must be true. It's really an impressive book, and it's big. and um, uh, David Hockney's been on 60 Minutes, and Charlie Rose, and he's given presentations at museums and and such. So I always assume that you know there must be some truth to this um, theory that the Renaissance masters were able to draw and paint with such um, beauty and truth because they were in some way, using lenses to project their images. So I was cruising around the Internet one day, and I said, i get got to find out you know, if there's anything on, online about this. So I saw a video that uh, David Hockney had made explaining some of his theories and demonstrating some of the, the ways that he thought the Renaissance masters did it, and I thought, there's an incredible amount of ignorance here of the traditional methods and the assumptions that he was making about these methods just did not make sense. And I thought that, you know, there's got to be, there's something wrong here. So I actually did go out and I bought the book because I wanted to take a look for myself at what he had written and see if, you know, maybe it was just a misunderstanding on my part of what he was trying to do in the videos. So the um, in the video, the sort of the premise was that artists really couldn't draw that well, that they must have had some means to aid them in, in drawing. And I saw them him standing in a completely illuminated room and the camera's at his face and he was saying, see, if you look at my face, there are no shadows. And if you look at these Renaissance and um, traditional paintings, they all have strong light and darks." And I thought, well, he doesn't know that they obviously posed the model next to a north light so they could get consistent light. He was standing in a fully illuminated room. And so I thought, well, that's kind of funny. And then <laughs> he, he was drawing a picture of a chandelier and he wasn't using the sight size method; it's a very um intricate chandelier, and he was drawing with the the paper down on a desk and looking up at it and I thought, if you're going to draw something that intricate you would it, you would have it was a van Eyck you would have used a van Eyck would have used the sight size method to draw it you know much more accurately So I did buy the book, and the first thing I looked at was this statement that he made that there were a lot of left-handedness for a period of about 40 years before they figured out a way to reverse lenses. And he gave three examples in the book. One was a painting by Hall, uh, one was by Karachi, and one was by Velazquez. And when I looked at the, the figures, they were holding a wine glass in their left hand, which he claims indicates that they were left-handed. But they also had a decanter that they had just poured the wine in their right hand. And I thought, well... <laughs> If I'm going to pour wine from a awkward decanter into a delicate wine glass, I would use my right hand to pour the decanter and hold the glass in yeah. my left. So uh-huh. then I went on to a website, and I looked up all the Velasquez, Halls and Karachi paint- figure paintings I could find, and I looked for left-handedness because, according to Hockney, because the lens reverses the mirror, there's a preponderance of left-handedness. Most of the figures are left-handed. And I found the opposite to be true. I looked at dozens of um, paintings, and I looked for things such as figures playing instruments, figures writing, how they, which side their sword was on, all these um, telltale indications whether they were lefties or righties. And it came out to be like 4 or 5% of the figures were lefties, and all three of these painters worked. So I, I said, that is an absolutely false statement. And hmm. then I went through the book, and started looking at different arguments he made. And the book was full of false statements and sort of misconceptions. So it was really um, kind of frustrating for someone who, I think I know a little bit about traditional painting methods, to read something that is just not based in fact and is is, blatantly wrong. Um, So anyway, I, I, I have been working on this little paper that sort of, discusses some of the issues that he brings up and gives a little bit of a a different perspective on it, and sort of a counter-argument to the argument he's making. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this is important is because he wants to try to get this instilled into the art curriculum in, um, I assume, high schools and colleges and such, and Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to um, have accurate and truthful courses being taught in colleges and high schools, and from what I can tell, there doesn't seem to be any truth to this idea that the Renaissance masters were able to do what they did by projecting images with lenses. There's a whole host of, of reasons, if you'd like me to get into them, I can. But it's anyway, the, the whole idea is that I'm trying to sort of counter this argument. And actually, if you go online, there are dozens and dozens of refutations of Hawking's book. So I guess I'm kind of trying to spread the gospel because he has a very large platform. As I said, he's he's got this very elaborate book that's just been reissued with a even larger and a larger edition, and he's been on TV and you know speaking around the world on this issue.
0: I think um, here's a quote from Hockney. It, he says that optical devices certainly don't paint pictures, and he said, uh, let me say now that the use of them diminishes no great artist. Uh, he took a lot of grief for some people thinking that he was saying that the master cheated. How would you interpret Honey's work?
1: Uh He is uh, saying that the master cheated in a way. The, the premise of the book is that they couldn't have done it without mirrors because it was too well done. He gives an mm-hmm. example where he tries to copy a, a, a chandelier as complex as Van Eyck, and he can't do it. Although if you go online, there's an artist in England. I think his name is William's. And he copied a couple of chandeliers, one more complex than Hockney's, just by sight size, by looking at it and painting it. So it can be done. But Hockney, his premise is that it's too hard to do it. You couldn't have done it without some type of device. And there's a quote he says. um, I'm not sure if it's the exact quote. Yeah, it is actually. It says, it would have taken an artist with extraordinary skill to do it. Well, these artists did have extraordinary skill. That's the whole point. That's why they're so amazing as draftsmen and as painters, because they have this ability to do that. And the whole idea that it was it resulted from this sort of invention or the utilization of a lens is not, doesn't take into account the whole um, change in focus and philosophy that the Renaissance produced, where you have this interest in humanism and so you had artists dissecting bodies would they go back to paint a body like a medieval painter would sort of all stylized and stiff no because they just cut into that body and they saw the bone and the muscle and how it's all put together and that was the impetus for them painting more realistically trying to get truth into their their artwork and hu- humanism rather than sort of the symbolism of the gothic era so it was a change in philosophy that brought about this great change in uh, technique and style, not the invention of some lens, which actually there's a lot of debate whether that lens even existed. Um, Many scholars say that there's there's no evidence of the lens ever existing.
0: Well, that's interesting, especially that you research it so much.
1: Yes, yeah, it, it just goes on and on. There's just dozens of arguments that he makes that are so easily refutable and just blatantly wrong that it, it convinces me that there's an ulterior motive, which is to denigrate the great masters of the past in some way. You know, he'll give sort a of lip service by saying he's not, it doesn't diminish them because lenses don't paint pictures, but the is drew the picture. And the thing that, that really amazes us about the Renaissance masters is their ability to draw. And so when you're saying that, well, they actually used a lens to do it, that obviously diminishes what we presume their their ability to be.
0: Joe, yeah, when I think of the, I'm sorry, I was just thinking about the Renaissance Masters, and I mean, their whole life was spent, um, this was their trade. They studied this since they were children throughout their lives. So I would think, you know, like anybody else that has 30, 40, 50, 60 years of experience, their talent is going to be so much different and so much better than possibly where we are today, because we don't actually think of art as a trade anymore.
1: You're right, and most of these Renaissance masters, they started as an apprentice when they were maybe 10, 12 years old in yeah. uh, you know the, the master's studio. So they had they ha- had that early training, which you know you can remember things when you're early when you're young. Much better than you can when you're older, and you know the big, the big difference between Hockney and them was see, Hockney's premise is that he's a practitioner, so he kind of has this insight into how they would paint, as opposed to a historian who doesn't have the insight. But Hockney is a he's a painter, but he's more of a graphic designer, and uh, it's more conceptual. He can't paint the way the Renaissance masters could paint. If you look at the portraits that Hockney had. Included in his book that he had done of um, guards at the, uh, I think it was the National Museum. They they don't compare at all to the the portraits that the Renaissance masters would, were doing. So he really doesn't have the ability to judge that artwork because he's never really done it the way they did it, and he didn't have the rigorous training that those artists had, starting when they were you know young kids and virtually working every day all day. In a master's studio, they didn't go to high school and to college and all that kind yeah. of distractions. they were basically you know when they were twelve years old, they went to study with the master and that's where they stayed until they became masters. so the degree of of knowledge that they had and the ability that was just sort of ingrained in them at such an early age was you know vastly superior to what we have these days and back then you had to do something by the time you were twelve you, you started your career. Right now we don't really start our career till we're in our mid teens or late teens or early twenties even.
0: That's right. But also, I mean, that kind of leads into the, the next question that we have, and also pertains to your first workshop. And um, that's the the description in the description of the workshop. It includes you know, that you're going to talk about um, defining contemporary realism and and how realist art fits into the larger art world today. Um, Mm -hmm. You've been kind of sharing that (laughs) interspersed with our discussion about Hockney, but is there there other things that you'd like to to talk about how that realist art fits in the larger world today?
1: Um, Yeah, well, I guess it's sort of a a uh, multi-question question, but I guess the first thing is, you know, defining what realism is. And okay. I've been struggling to define realism for several years now. It's no longer used in the same manner as it was in the 19th century. Um, right. In the 19th century, it was used to depict, I mean, it was used to depict paintings of everyday life and your average man-on-the-street type of um, scene and genre scenes and such. Um, previous to that, a lot of art dealt with um mythology and religion and it was monarchial portraits so mm-hmm. right in the mid 19th century Courbet came along and he was um painting paintings of stone cutters and farmers and funerals and, and such and they saw you know this is vastly different than the predominant styles and modes of art that are being practiced today and so they coined it realism mm-hmm. but now the term is you know it's applied to anything that looks real if you can recognize something in it, then it you know it's called realism. So um, this means that artists such as Hockney, Estes, and Wyeth are considered realists. So I guess my first question is, you know, how can we more accurately define just what realism is? And I think that it has to be has to come back to sort of the root meaning of real. And the dictionary defines real as being or occurring in fact or actuality having a verifiable existence. So then that leads me to, well, if you have a, a photograph of a tree, it's not a real tree. So if you make a painting from that photograph, can it be called realism? Because you're making a painting of something that is not real. You're making a painting of a photograph of something that's real, so it's sort of one step removed from the real thing, as opposed to an artist who's out in the field painting the real tree. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess one of the, the questions is, should we more accurately define realism? And for the sake of connoisseurship and sort of creating somewhat of a discussion in uh, you know this realism genre that we work in, should we start thinking about other ways that we can sort of cut up the realism pie to give a little bit more accurate, I hate to say labels, but it's hard to discuss something without labeling it. I mean, it's hard to discuss Impressionist painting without calling them impressionists. You couldn't call them, you know, those painters in France in the 1860s and 70s. So you, you kind of need a label so you can discuss something on sort of an intellectual or a little bit higher level. So one of my um, sort of thoughts that I'm having is that we should probably see if, if there's ways that we can more accurately sort of cut up the realism pie into the different, methods and goals that the different artists have because we all aren't doing the same thing. On sort of a superficial level we are. I mean, there again, you're painting a tree, it looks like a tree. But if there's a photorealist artist painting the tree, he's doing something completely different than what I'm doing. And uh-huh. my goals have absolutely nothing to do with what he's doing and his goals have absolutely nothing to do with what I'm doing. But we're sort of all lumped into the same realist pot. So, um, you know, the big question is, is there ways that we can sort of talk about what we do with a little bit more accuracy because then that leads to a higher level of discussion. One of the things that frustrates me is that there's not a lot of intellectual discussion about the, the type of art that we're all making, you know, the sort of realist art that's being done out there. It's a lot of, well, that's a nice picture. It's got a beautiful design it's drawn well, the colors are really pleasing. But there's not sort of the meat behind it. Like, why are you using a photograph? Why are you not using a photograph? What are you trying to do by using a photograph? What are you trying to do by not using a photograph? And I think it's a it's an important difference because it really is the underlying um, reason for the artwork to, to exist. The method is really important to me, and mm-hmm. I think it's important to most artists. So... I guess the first question is, you know, what is realism? So, well, for the sake of the second part of the question, how does it fit into the sort of the larger art world of the art establishment? Um, I guess we, we'll we'll call our, our, all of our the work that we do realism, and it it fits in um, in kind of a funny way because right now the most popular type of artwork done in in the country right now is uh realism it's you know the most popular ism out there it's if you look at all the programs going on throughout the country um, it's just burgeoning and there's an incredible amount of interest uh, when I was in college the, there was no there was actually the Guild of Boston artists in Boston was the only place that I knew of, and I didn't find out about that until I was a senior where you could mm-hmm. learn traditional painting and drawing methods where you could learn the site size method and cast drawing and such. Now there are hundreds of places across the country where you can learn that. Um, When I started out plein air painting, I was in college, and one of my teachers, I had done a painting, and every uh, every week we would have to do two paintings on our own outside of class, and I did a painting of a seascape. And we put them up against the wall, and the teacher would, pick out you know seven or eight of them and give them a critique. So we put all our paintings up, and she critiqued the, all these paintings. And uh, She didn't critique mine, and this kid yelled over to her, hey, why didn't you critique Joe's? This is the best one up there. And she said, well, because you shouldn't paint from photographs. And I said, well, I didn't paint from photographs. So I made it up. And she said, well, you can't paint for, from your imagination or making things up until you've been painting outside for at least ten years which, you know, I was like 19, and I thought, my God, in 10 years I'll be dead, won't I? (laughs) So anyway, I I did take it to heart, and I went out and I bought a plein air painting box, which was basically a wooden suitcase that weighed about 40 pounds in itself and took 15 minutes to set up with wrenches and hammers and, and such. But I enjoyed it immensely. It was like, wow, I had really found something amazing. But back then, the only plein air painting kit available was this huge wooden box. Shortly mm-hmm. after that, they came out with the pochard, the um, French easels and pochard boxes and such. Mm-hmm. And now there are dozens of pochard box manufacturers out there. They're, again, fulfilling a need and showing that, you know, this realist painting movement is really a growing, vibrant movement. Um, mm-hmm. And if you look at how many artists are out out there pra- practicing this, this mode of art, this, you know, thousands and thousands of them. All the magazines when you know, when I was starting out there was American artists, and I think that was probably the only one that really catered to representational painting. Now there's dozens and dozens of magazines that, that cater to us. So I guess the the upshot is that this is really a very, very vibrant and dynamic um corner of the art world. So okay. then you say, well how do we fit into the sort of the artist Establishment, and we don't. Unfortunately, (laughs) Um, we seem to be pretty much ignored by them. And I actually have a PowerPoint presentation that I've given to um, a couple of places. I I gave it at the Guild of Boston Artists and the Cape Cod Museum of Art, and it sort of discusses what's going on in the in the art world and why are we being ignored, and why are these um, conceptual abstract artist in new york and london and berlin and such bringing in such absurd amounts of money you know 25 million dollars for a jeff Koons purple magenta passion flower and um 110 million dollars for andy warhol's Eight elvis silk screen. Mm-hmm. and it all comes down to sort of the money aspect of it because there's a, a huge amount of money being made in the contemporary art scene Um, between the auction houses and the investors who invest in this art. I really can't call them collectors because a lot of the art goes from the auction to the vault and then back to the next auction after it's appreciated enough. So there's a whole um, money game sort of going on that we're excluded from, largely because we don't make enough money for the people who are involved in this. And that's one of the reasons why we're kind of where we we just don't really fit into the art establishment because money indicates quality. And if something costs $110 million, you have to say, my God, that's going to be an absolutely amazing piece of artwork. I mean, $110 million, if you picture a million dollar house, how many of them can you buy for that? Well, 110 of them. So you have to assume that it's an amazing piece of artwork. And, you know, we're. Most realist artwork is selling for you know fifty thousand a hundred thousand ten thousand you know in that range it mm-hmm. it sort of indicates that it's of much 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 lesser quality, which isn't the case, but we're not involved in sort of the financial investment aspect of the the contemporary art world, so it kind of leaves us out of the loop and not really um a player in the game so one of okay. my Oh, just real, real
0: yeah, just real quick. Yep. Is is modernist uh, and postmodern considered more of a commodity then?
1: I would say so, yes. Um, okay. you know, you've got that was this my financial art-
0: brain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, in the PowerPoint presentation I do, it quotes a dealer as saying that if he's got a painting that's worth $700,000 and one similar by the same artist comes up at auction, he has to make sure that that sells for at least $700,000 because he's got 10 more of them back at his gallery. And if it uh-huh. doesn't sell for $700,000, well, he doesn't have $7 million worth of paintings back at his gallery. Now he may only have $5 million in paintings back at his gallery. So he's got to maintain that $700,000 price. But actually, he would want it to go up because if it they went up to, say, a $1 million, well, now he's got... Ten million dollars worth of paintings back at his gallery, not seven million dollars. So he'll make three million dollars because now that a similar painting to the ones that he owns has just sold for a million dollars at auction. So they have to maintain, you know, the prices at auction, and it, that's where it's, you know, it's an investment for a lot of the buyers because they realize that if they buy the the right artists, and they know who to ask, what artists they should buy, they can uh, make a huge amount of money.
0: Okay. so the so question I, becomes: how, how do we make <clears throat> realism art a commodity?
1: Well, I don't, I don't. Sometimes you may not you you may not want it to be. It's kind of like you may not wish for what's going to happen to happen. And I think
0: right.
1: I would rather our 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 genre to be more quality based than investment based. And one of right. my my. Thoughts is that what we need is a benefactor like Piggy Guggenheim to underwrite a major museum of realist art where it's based on quality rather than commodity and um, where we can get some press and some attention because, you know, there's, you know, remember Thomas Kincaid, he was, you know, very popular. And people were wondering, you know, how did he get this popularity? And one of the reasons is because. People out there have a yearning for representational painting, representational art. And they would go to the museums and they wouldn't see it, except in the 19th century stuff, which they obviously couldn't buy. And then, you know, the Kincaid Gallery would open up in town and they would see representational art and they would buy it because they hadn't been exposed to a lot of good contemporary realism because there just isn't a lot being offered out there in, like, the museums and such. So... My idea is to find a benefactor and almost start sort of like a parallel universe where we have our own institutions. Um, rather than trying to get into the Metropolitan Museum, we just can't compete with that kind of money power. And right. there's the whole sort of web of entanglement that comes with the money, and it, it's uh, we just can't, we we're just we're not a player in the, with the money that we have available to us. So my idea is to start our own institutions. And there are places like idea. the Art Renewal Center and, and such that is kind of you know maybe sort of a starting point. And um, there's rumors of a gallery and of, of a museum in East Boston, a museum of realist art. I haven't found out too much about it. Someone just sent me a link to an article about it the other day, which I haven't had time to read. But no, I think it would be a great success because, as I said, there is a huge amount of interest in in realist art among the practitioners and appreciators and connoisseurs and collectors and such.
0: Yeah, um I don't I don't want to get into it on the air Joe, but you and I need to talk off the air um and and meet in San Diego cuz there's some stuff that I I'd like to get into with you. So I just want to and put that in your ear right here cuz I have you on the phone, but <laughs> we'll sure. we'll talk more. Okay.
1: Okay, that sounds great. I have a lot more detail and such and <laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> I, it's one of these subjects I could go on for... Well, actually, all of these subjects I could go on forever. I love talking about art and um, mm-hmm. discussing different issues. That are, they're all interesting to me, so...
0: And, and that's one me, of the reasons... You're... Sorry, Blanche, go ahead. I'm sorry, Linda. <laughs> no, no, that's well, right. I, was to, I was just going to bring the discussion back around to the use of uh, photographic reference. Um, I know that you... Use uh, plein air painting, and then you use your plein air paintings in the studio for reference, and then also your memory, which is very yeah. impressive to me. <laughs> as we <laughs> talked about before the show, yeah, um, I think you've told us a little bit about why you prefer to paint uh, without photo reference. Do you think that photo reference is used too much as a crutch and keeps other artists from exploring their creativity?
1: Um. Yeah, a little bit. It it depends on how they use it. Um, I I guess for myself, I I don't use it, so for me, it's not a crutch. But I think some artists sometimes they sort of get stuck, and they sort of then they whip out the photo to figure out how to overcome this roadblock they've hit. And Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes it might be better to go back to nature, go back to the source, and try to find your way around the roadblock by looking at, like, the primary source rather than the secondary source, which is what, you know, a photo is. Um, Yeah. So I I think it may be – well, I guess this sort of opens up the whole can of worms about, like, why I don't paint from photos and, um, you know, the the methods that I use and and why. I don't know if you want to get into that yet or – But, yeah, it it can be a a little bit of a crutch, and I think it can be an impediment to expressing your creativity because if you don't have the thing that you're trying to paint in front of you, then you have a hard time painting it, where if you've been painting out of doors for years, you develop this visual memory in your mind, and you can make up things and invent things, and it gives you great freedom.
0: I think you talked about on your website about... um in the real world, things are always moving. Um, even the atoms, every everything. So the wind is blowing. Uh, the clouds are moving, and a and photo is just completely static.
1: Right. They're they're two complete they're two completely different source materials to work from. Um, which goes back to my statement at the beginning of the the interview here that someone who's painting from a photograph is doing something completely different than what I'm doing. Um, a real tree exists in three dimensions. You can climb it. You can chop a branch off of it. And in the winter, it's going to lose its leaves. It's blowing, <laughs> blowing in the wind. Um, it's composed of atoms and particles that are just this frenzy of activity. It exists in time and space where a photograph doesn't. It's, you know, flat and static. And obviously the photograph is made of atoms, but they're different atoms than the tree would be made out of. So it's a di- it's a completely different source, and I think that also gives you a different mindset on what you're trying to do, and ultimately it gives you a different look on what the pa- how the painting will turn out in the end. And if you look at paintings throughout history, you can see a definite shift and trend in the look of paintings after the advent of photography, and particularly nowadays where it's becoming much more prevalent. And If you look at, for instance, a Frederick Church painting, say, um, Cotopaxi, of the the great volcano in South America, it looks Uh real, but it doesn't look like a photograph. And if you squint at it, it doesn't have that photographic look. But a lot of contemporary paintings, if you squint at it, it looks like a photograph. So it looks more like a photograph than it looks real, if you know what I mean. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: where you know the church painting, it doesn't look at all photographic, but it looks real. People often say, oh, that it looks just like a photograph, which they mean it's a compliment. But mm-hmm. on looking at it much deeper than sort of the superficial, you know, does it look, you know, does a tree look like a tree? There's a big difference between a, a tree a painting of a tree that looks real and a painting of a tree that looks like a photograph, because there is a difference between. You know your your methods, and then that obviously makes a difference in the
0: results okay. it, uh, to add on to to your workshops um we'll stay in the in in that area of discussion right now. You have two additional workshops that you're going to be doing, and one of them is plain air drawing value color through the site size method, method and you've talked about that a couple times and we've not asked you to talk about that method, but we're going to do that now because I know there's probably a lot of folks that are listening that are saying, tell me about that method. So there you go, Joe.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, well, the plein air uh, painting uh, thing that I've actually been doing is um, I learned that years ago, after I had graduated from college and realized I really didn't know how to draw after spending four years at art school, I mm-hmm. seeked out... Uh, one of the um the students of Ives Gamel who was a, he was classically trained in the French academy methods and his teacher was Paxton and Paxton's teacher was Jerome so there's this you know lineage of um knowledge being passed on from master to student and uh Bob Cormier was a student of Gamel and he was at the guild of boston artists in boston and I met him there and studied figure drawing with him for 2 years where we were doing just site-sized charcoal drawings. And it was an amazing way to learn how to draw, and it really changed my art because before that I was painting sort of the loose sort of Fairfield pottery way, trying to be expressive and all that, but underlying my paintings was bad drawing. So they just, they weren't looking good, and most of them were failures and such. And a friend of mine had told me about um, the Boston school and the whole story. Uh, This, uh, painter Frank Stisula, who's up in new report that I've known for years and years. So I sought out Bob Cormier, and I studied, studied figure drawing with him, and we used the site-size method. Then a few years ago, I thought, well, why can't I use the site-size size, method for painting landscapes? And I thought maybe I could. So I tried a couple of landscapes with it, and it really seemed to improve my paintings right away. And I thought, I think I've got something here. So, I've been sort of adapting the method ever since, and I'm um, trying to refine it and get it so it works a little bit better and I think I've got it down to a, a pretty good um, a pretty good me- methodical approach to painting the landscape so for those of you who don't know what the site size method is, I can try to explain it to you um It's easy to show you, but i can I think I might be able to explain it to you. It was actually developed through uh, about 500 years from the Renaissance up to the French Academy in the 19th century is where it really reached the pinnacle of its development. Unfortunately, right at that time, modernism came in, and it was dismissed by all the modernists, and it was this old, staid, stale thing that stifled creativity and such. But there was this little thread of um, artists in Boston called the Boston School. That they retained the methods of the French Academy and site size drawing and cast drawing and such. And um, Ives Gamel was sort of the leader of, of the Boston School in the later part after Paxton and those had passed on. So the method that I learned from Bob Cormier was that you place your subject next to your canvas. You don't place your subject in front of your canvas and then stand back like 10 feet with the canvas in front of you. They're side-by-side side next to each other. Then oh. you... Walk back, you know, maybe 10 feet or so. It depends on how big you want the, the um, painting to be. But you walk back, say, 10 feet, and you put a little piece of tape on the floor. And that's where you look at your, your subject and your canvas next to each other. And so you walk up to the canvas, and you draw part of what you see. Then you stand, walk back to your tape mark and look at what you drew, and you say, does that look exactly the same size and the same shape as what I see next to my canvas? And you decide whether it does or doesn't, and you go up and you make corrections. And you walk back to that back and forth between the canvas and the spot on the floor, looking from the spot at the floor and walking up to the canvas and drawing and making corrections, then walking back to the spot on the floor and looking at your subject and your canvas side by side and making the corrections. And you you'll do this for you know however long it takes you to make the painting, but the whole time you're painting next right on the canvas, but you're looking ten feet back from the canvas. They say that Sargent wore a path in his rug, walking back and forth between his canvas and his his looking spot, his little mark in the floor. Um, that's the just great what thing I was about
0: say, I've read that.
1: Is, yeah, um, he was a you know a great proponent of sight size drawing. Um, uh-huh. The great thing is you're looking at your subject and your your drawing or your painting of it at exactly the same size, and it's much easier to make comparisons. When you start out with this method, you can actually use calipers and um, levels and make measurements. You can measure how wide the head is on the on the figure, and then you just slide that measurement over vertically, or horizontally, rather, to your painting and see if it's the same width and it's, it's a very precise way of drawing, but what happens is eventually you, you train your eye so well that you don't have to measure anymore. You can dispense with the measurement, and you just use your eye. Okay. So the great thing about it is if the drawing is correct, the color and the value are much easier to, to determine because the more accurate you have one part, the more accurate everything else has to be. So if your value is, like, too low or, or too too high... You're going to be able to see that much more accurately if your drawing is really accurate mm-hmm. so i've been um I've been working with this method for um quite a while. I actually put a little frame on the top of my or next to my painting that I'm painting in the field in my planar easel, and I look through the viewer it's like a viewfinder basically, and I look through the viewfinder at what I'm painting, and what I see through the viewfinder I transfer horizontally or vertically onto my panel. Now, I can't obviously place my panel next to the thing that I'm painting because if I'm I'm painting a mountain that's five miles away in a tree that's 50 feet away, how do I do that? So that's why I've constructed this little viewfinder that I look through. But I still move everything the exact same size I see it from what's in the viewfinder, move it horizontally or vertically onto the panel. So I'm still doing the same idea. Site size means you make it the same size that you see it.
0: I see. So the frame that you're looking for is the, through is the same size as your canvas that you're painting on?
1: Yes, it's exactly the same size. So when uh-huh. I'm done, in theory, I can slide my painting over to where the viewfinder is, and uh-huh. the the whole painting meshes in with the landscape behind me. I actually did oh, that with great. a a workshop that I, I conducted this spring, we kept it very simple. I made a demonstration first where it was just the sky and the ocean, and I looked through my viewfinder and I drew the horizon at the exact spot that it, I saw through the viewfinder, which was just you know extending the horizon straight across to my panel. Then I matched up the sky color exactly and the water color exactly to the um, what I saw in the viewfinder. And then I took the viewfinder away, and if you stand back and squint a little bit, it's like your panel disappears because you have the exact same color in the sky and the exact same color in the water. And so it's a really easy way to determine your colors and values. Now, it doesn't work if you're looking into the sun because your, your panel is, is in shadow and you can't get anything bright enough. But when you've got the sun shining on the panel, unless you have some really deep shadows, you can do that, and so it's kind of like you make your panel disappear because you've painted the scene exactly the same size that you see it, and if you're careful, you've painted all the colors and the values and the shapes exactly as you see it, too.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Does that make sense?
0: That's amazing. Are you going to demonstrate that in in that workshop? Yes.
1: Yeah, that
0: would be fantastic to see.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll demonstrate that. It's it's actually a lot of fun, and um, I think the students in the workshop that I gave this spring were just like amazed, like that they could paint something, and they were all like couldn't wait till they could stand back and squint and make their panel disappear. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> and it's really fun with architecture because architecture is much easier to, to to do because you don't have so much surface detail to the and to try to recreate for instance if you're painting a tree it's impossible to paint all the leaves in the tree so you have to sort of develop this shorthand method of indicating the leaves but if you're painting a building you can paint that building really really exactly and then you take away your viewfinder and you squint and you line up what you painted with where the viewfinder was and it's amazing how you can just make that panel disappear when you do something really complex like a building it's a lot of fun
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Do you have op- Do you have openings still in your workshop at weekend with the masters, Joe?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I I really have no idea. Okay. Uh,
0: well, uh, I'd, they can try. Uh, if anybody who's going to weekend with the masters wants to join into Joe's workshop, they they can register online, and that would be actually the best place to to look and see if if there are spaces available. But you also teach this in workshops. That you list out on your website, correct,
1: yes, I do one one a year um in the spring or in the fall, and we uh we go to a beautiful location here in Cape Cod. It's usually a five day workshop. We'll do um four days at a place that I've rented' There's, uh one year we rented a house on an island, and we stayed there for the four days and painted and this past year we rented this um spectacular property owned by the uh, National Academy of Sciences, and we painted there for four days. And then the last day we come to my house and we have a cookout and we paint in the yard. I have a um, an old carriage house that's um, on the water, so we have a nice view to paint out. And I'll stick a couple boats out so we have something to paint maybe. And we'll paint in the morning and I'll do maybe a demo in the studio and then have a cookout and a critique to wrap it up. So that's a lot of fun, and I enjoy the workshops mostly because the people that take them are just so nice, and everyone is really enthusiastic about art, and I get to talk about art for five
0: days.
1: Yeah, <laughs> So it's a, a really great time. <laughs> <laughs> Information oh, on my like website. A lot of we actually fun. haven't. What's that?
0: It sounds like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it is. We haven't um, chosen our date for next year yet, but it'll be on the website at some point. Mhm.
0: Okay, well, well, you may have Blanche and I up there at the same time, so that might be <laughs> that might be a little distracting, right, Blanche? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never seen seen this method, so I'm I'm fascinated by it, Joe. Yeah, yeah
1: it, it's really quite a it, it's really fun to do. It's it's enjoyable painting this way, and it's um uh, it's it's one of the every now and then you've just got to mix it up and add something new to your painting sort of repertoire and. When I started doing this, I, it sort of gave me a new, new impetus, new enthusiasm. Um, and you know, now I'm, I've started doing pastels, which is kind of the exciting thing for me now. So it's, it's always it's nice to move around, not do the same thing, you know, year after year yeah. after year, because then yeah. you kind of get stale and you end up repeating yourself, and your paintings come become somewhat predictable. And people look at your work, and right away they know. It's nice to be for people to be able to identify your work, but not quite so readily as, as sometimes it happens. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Does this site size method also help you find compositions within a the scene in front of you? So uh, you know, we, we always walk out to the field, and there's this wonderful, beautiful, you know, landscape in front of us, and one of the my mentors, Jan Arnett, and and even Kevin McPherson, you know, say to kind of, you know, draw out the scene and then crop down. And and does site size help you do that as well, kind of find those compositions within the scene in front of you?
1: Yeah. Um, There's a couple of sort of caveats with site size. Um, One is that it's so accurate that you sometimes lose some of the emotional impact that you want to receive from the scene. For instance, uh, there's a, a Albert Bierstadt painting uh, Landers Peak, the Rocky Mountains. It's at the mm-hmm. Metropolitan Museum, and it's a huge um, landscape with the Rocky Mountains and in an Indian village in the foreground, Rocky Mountains in the background. Mm-hmm. And I remember I re- was re- reading a critique of it one time, and the, the writer was saying how the mountains were totally unrealistic. They looked like Austrian Alps because if they were actually that high, they'd be like 40,000 feet high or 70,000 feet, I forget what number she um, threw up, it was this astronomical height. And I thought, well, she doesn't understand what he's doing. He was painting what he felt when he saw the mountains, not what he saw. Because mm-hmm. art is part emotion and part you know, sort of recording what you see. But whenever you look at something, you get an emotional feedback from it that is, it's not just visual, it's sort of this emotional response. So he was trying to express the majesty and the grandeur and just the you know the amazing scale and mass of the Rocky Mountains, which oh. caused him to make them much higher than they were. With okay. sight size drawing, you have to be careful because you can lose that emotional impact, and your painting doesn't. It, it looks like it, the thing that it looks like, but it doesn't feel like what it, what it feels like. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to paint what I feel, but right. also. You know, it it won't work for everybody because we all have different goals. And, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about the art world is that, in a way, artists are all egotists because we think that our method is the best way to achieve what we're trying to achieve, which makes sense because we'd be kind of silly if we thought there was a better way to paint and we weren't using it. So we're always nosing around trying to find the best way to paint what we want to paint. So a little bit egotistical in, in that sense, but it doesn't mean that we can't sort of appreciate different artists and what they're doing. It's just that what they're doing isn't going to work for me. For instance, if someone's painting from photographs, that's that's fine for them because their goals are different than mine, and I don't want to put my values on what they're doing. But it wouldn't work for me. So I'm all you know. I I think that the way I'm working is the best way to achieve the results that I'm looking for. And by using the site-size method, um, when I'm doing the, the plein air painting, that's not really my art. My art is going to happen back in the studio. The plein air sketch is really just a way to get information in the field and to, and to connect with the landscape in a much, much deeper deeper way than um, it would be if I were taking a photograph from it. Um so there's a whole you know gamut of philosophical and practical reasons why I, I don't use photographs and why I'm I'm you know painting these landscapes with the site-size size method and then you know transferring them into the larger studio paintings but for me the goal of the the planner sketch is to get the information to do a larger painting which and that usually is where the art happens sometimes the planner sketches come out fine and I'm happy with them and I put them out as finished paintings in their own right but the real goal is to use them for information gathering and sort of connection with you know, my subject. So it may not work for everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, so you're not spending a lot of time composing your plein air paintings because they're, you're not intending them to be finished finished works, usually.
1: Right. My my first goal is to find something interesting and fascinating in the landscape. And a lot of times I look at it and I say, I know this is a stinky composition. But the information there is really good. The way the light is like bouncing off of this rock and hitting the water and reflecting here or whatever. Or the shape of that tree is absolutely fascinating. Or the atmosphere between this, you know, foreground and background is just really spectacular. So my first goal is to find something really interesting and fascinating and to understand more about my subject, to try to understand my subject on a much deeper level because um it's you know with me painting is really a way to try to understand you know what what is life and what what is our relationship to nature and the universe and it's a way to connect with this so by going out into the landscape and sort of studying this in a really deep and profound level i can take all that sort of information back to the studio and distill it and to make it into sort of a finished studio painting a lot of times, my paintings will be a combination of several sketches that I've made um, of, of a particular location. So, uh, no, I'm not really, really all consumed with trying to get a good composition. Obviously, if I can get a good composition, I want to do that because ultimately, it, it's still a work of art, and I'm still trying to create art, even though it's more of an information gathering experience than a you know a creative experience. I'm still trying to create art. So if there's a, you know, a really bad compositional element, I'll change it. But I don't want to change things too much because if I do, then I'm starting to get really loose with my sort of my my um the spot that inspired me. And, you know, if I change the composition here and then the color there and, you know, the sky there a little bit, suddenly it has very little connection to the thing that I'm actually looking at. So when I get back to the studio, I'm painting from kind of a, a vague notion of what it was rather than something very specific. So specific. So if I change things, I don't know what I'm changing from to. Where if I keep a very accurate plein air sketch, I know that this is what I saw and I'm consciously changing it to something different rather than I already changed it, so I don't know what I saw. And I'm changing it again, and it's getting a little bit too far removed from the source of inspiration. But there are also times when I go out and I just do a plein air sketch because I want to do a painting, and that's the goal is to make art at that stage too. So there's kind of a little bit of um, difference in in what I'm trying to accomplish in the field. But usually it is just to get the information.
0: That's it. Okay, Joe, let's go to your third workshop. We've got about 30 minutes left, and I I would like to cover the rest of the questions that we had talked about prior to coming on air. Um, And so I want to hit your third workshop, which is painting the landscape with light, form, shape, and color. And can you tell us your thoughts on why these elements are so important for an artist to capture?
1: Sure. Um, Actually, I think there's a typo. It should be light, form, space, and color. Uh, rather than shape. And,
0: oh, sorry. <laughs> yep,
1: yeah, that's okay. All of these elements—light, form, space, and color—are really used to describe the landscape. Um, light is the most important of of, the, of them because it tell us, tells us about the form. Without light, we don't know what the form is. If you have a, you know, a blob, and it's a cloudy day, it's very difficult to see the form. And if the less light you have, the more difficult it is to see the form. Mm-hmm. Um, the light is gonna impact the color. For instance, a, a white building at noon has a much different look than it does at sunset. And the light also tells us about space because it um creates atmospheric perspective and distance and you know the the more light that's being filtered by the atmosphere, the greater sense of distance and space we have. So they're all they're all sort of they're really critical to describe the landscape and the different forms that we have. And my paintings are usually kind of an exploration of the light forms based in color through paint. Um, It's like a physicist, for instance, explores nature with his observations and translates that into math. And artists such as myself explore nature with observations and we translate it through art. And so what I'm really trying to do is Analyze these elements and learn a little bit more about our world and and the sort of the physical qualities that it has, and then turn it into you know a piece of artwork that um, sort of it's almost like a journey of understanding the landscape, and so I think light form space, and color are really sort of the underpinnings of all landscape paintings um, and during the workshop we'll divide each up into sort of a little subset and a subcategory. We'll talk about light for a while and you know, what happens with different lighting situations, scenarios and space, how to create a sense of space and um how it relates with to you know form and color. And we'll talk about color and um how you can use color to your advantage by sometimes muting it and sometimes exaggerating it and overstating the colors and we'll talk about colour harmony which is kind of an interesting concept because there are a lot of artists that use a limited palette approach because they believe it creates harmony, which it does, in particular if you're painting with artificial light or or indoor subjects with artificial light, but my feeling is that if you use a full range of colors, basically it's a warm and cool of each color, and then I have a few favorites like this, this greenish umber, which is sort Mm -hmm. of a semi-trans transparent, brown, umber color with just a little tinge of green that I really like. And I use uh, dioxazine purple because it's nice and dark and deep and has a lot of punch to it, and a a Rembrandt uh, lemon yellow pale because it's a very light yellow that really retains its power when you lighten it up and make it very, very pale. But anyway, I basically use a a full range of, of colors, warm and cool of each, and I know there are some artists that use a limited palette, but my feeling is that if you can recreate the colors that you see in nature, you will always be harmonious. You don't have to try to make a harmonious painting because nature is always harmonious. And I don't think you can ever look outside at nature and say, boy, that doesn't look harmonious at all. It's just naturally harmonious. Mm-hmm. So if you can recreate yeah. what you see, and there again, it, it comes back to sort of the site size method and painting and drawing very accurately. But if you can recreate exactly what you see out there, you will automatically create harmony in your landscapes. So it's kind of an easy and stupid way to create harmony. You just copy what you see. Then when you get back into the lot. studio, what's
0: that? Uh, that makes a lot of sense. The colors are reflecting um, on different things in the landscape, the sky, the the ground, uh, plain. So it would be harmonious.
1: Right. I, I just have never looked out at, at a landscape that said that doesn't look very harmonious. You right. can obviously, you know, make intellectual decisions to cheat your palette towards warm colors or cool colors or reds or blues and things like that. And mm-hmm. for me, that's that those type of decisions are usually made back in the studio. And in the studio, I do manipulate color and change the the temperature of the whole painting or the the um, value range and such. Um, But out in the field, there again, I I try to stay pretty true to what I'm seeing Um, because a lot of times you don't have enough time really to think, what is this painting, this scene, really about? And I'll often bring my paintings, my Plano sketches back to the studio and I put them up in these racks I have on the wall and I'll look at them for, you know, maybe weeks or months and every now and then I'll look at it and try to come up with what I want to do with it. And it usually comes out much better than the sketch because I've had this time to think about what I want to do and how I can change it to make it a more powerful painting sort of visually as just sort of an aesthetic piece of artwork, but also to give it some emotional content and sort of bring the viewer along this journey of discovering, um, discovery I'm trying to engage in with you know nature and the landscape and you know, the, the meaning of life, basically, is kind of what the, the big question is. And I think that sometimes when I'm out in the field painting, I sort of get close to that question. I obviously will never get the answer to it, but I feel somewhat close to that, like, you know, what am I doing here in this rock in the middle of the universe, painting the scene with these sort of earth pigments and such, and what am I trying to say, and what's my connection, and am I significant or insignificant, and... Does it matter if I ever paint this painting or not? Yeah, I all these things sort of run through my mind as i'm as I'm painting the landscape, and it doesn't happen anywhere else. It just happens out there in the land. so I'm trying to sort of convey that that sort of mindset to the viewer that you know there's, there's something more than just a pretty picture here. it's sort of a questioning of you know um, of what we're we're sort of doing and. Um, it's like the Gauguin painting at the Museum of Fine Arts. It's this beautiful Tahitian scene. And translated, it, the title is, what, what are we, where do we come from, where are we going? And that's kind of like the big, like the ultimate question. And sometimes when I'm in the landscape, I feel really close to that question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I wish I felt closer to the answer, but... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I was going to ask you if you found the answers. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> because if you did, it would really help a lot of us out. So <laughs> <You went> to... <laughs>
1: Well, I have a great interest in physics too, and you know, one of the, the interesting things I, I think is the sort of the sort of competing and cooperating theories between like physics and spirituality and such. And I've come to the conclusion that there's. There's an answer to both of them. We just haven't figured. We don't know enough yet to see how they can sort of reconcile themselves. But they're both right, and one day maybe we will find the answer. But we just don't know enough about each to be able to, you know, to understand how they can reconcile one another.
0: John, let me ask you. I I read that you rarely include figures in your painting. Um, Right. Can you tell us about your motivation for
1: this? And, um Yes. Because my subject is sort is nature and like the universe and you know everything that's happening out there. And mm-hmm. if we I put a figure in, suddenly it's a picture of a person doing something. Even if it's a tiny tiny figure, a tiny figure walking through a field, suddenly it's not a picture of nature. It's a picture of a figure walking in the field so the the human form is such a magnetic presence that it's just impossible to ignore you can't just sort of gloss over it as soon as you put a figure in that becomes the the, the subject of the painting and i want the the um you know as i said i want nature and the landscape to be the subject of the painting also i want the, the viewer to be able to enter the painting and if you were to use sort of a a, a grammatical analogy it would be Instead of it being a painting of a man in the field, where the subject is the man in the field, it would be I am looking at the field, where the subject is, where you are the subject. If you understand, like I want the experience to be I am looking at a field, rather than it's a painting of a man in the field, where you know the painting or the man becomes the the painting actually becomes the subject, but I want the in my paintings, I want the viewer to be the subject. I am looking at a field, and by putting a figure in there, I, I, I um, it's a roadblock to the to the viewer from entering the painting.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: sometimes, like the little figures in and such.
0: Hmm. When I look at your paintings, I feel as if I can go very deep into the landscape. Uh, I guess that's the the space you're trying to convey in your painting
1: yes it's it's really important for me to give sort of the three dimensional quality to my paintings, and that's one of you know the great traditions of Western art is trying to create this illusion of a three dimensional world on a two dimensional surface and so it's really important for me to get this sense of space and sort of infinite space in the paintings and that's one of the reasons why I do landscapes years ago i used to I did portraits and figures and still life and such. And eventually, I just didn't get the, the the feedback, the emotional charge from the the still lifes and the portraits and such so I got some landscapes. And I thought, you know, life is too short to do something that I'm not totally enthralled with. So I sort of stopped doing the um, still lifes and such because I I just didn't get that that you know jolt of excitement, and adrenaline. And the thing that I think really really gives me that is creating this sort of sense of infinite space and atmosphere. In light and things that are, you know, not really conducive to portrait paintings or still life. Okay. So the 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 sense of space and and depth into my paintings is really important.
0: Okay. Jill, I wanted to um, congratulate you on being designated a living master by the Art Renewal Center in New York City. That's um, quite an honor and. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the center and, and what this meant to you?
1: Uh, yeah. Actually, I'm kind of relatively new to it, so I'm probably not the best person to ask about it, but um, it, they, it seems like they kind of have a lot of goals that are similar to mine, and one of one of them is sort of bringing back connoisseurship and scholarship and thoughtful discussion on representational painting. Um they're also, um, they have a, you know, a pretty nice website. It's quite expensive, actually. And they have several goals. Um, one of their goals is to create a, an online museum, uh, the largest one on the Internet, with, um, you know, thousands of images on it. And um, that's actually where I went when I was looking at the uh, the paintings by Karachi, Halls, and uh, Velazquez for the TalkMe book I wanted to... Um, find some place where I could look at, you know, a hundred images or so by these artists. Um, they also have several goals. One of them is to promote the return of training standards and excellence in the visual arts, trying to, you know, do what we're all trying to do, get increase the, the, the quality of the education out there. And sort of establish, they obviously don't have to be written standards, but sort of a a consensus of what makes good art and what makes good representational painting. Um, They're also interested in providing um, opposing views to those of the current art establishment. If you read, say, Newsweek, they have lots of reviews of sort of abstract conceptual artwork, but you never see any opposing views, you know. So they're trying to establish sort of a forum where they can give another another take on it and not sort of um, swallow everything up as being wonderful. And they're trying to uh, repudiate the idea that development art requires destruction of boundaries and standards. And this idea that as long as it's new and ugly and bizarre, then it's good. That, you know, not everything that's new and ugly and bizarre is good. Yeah. Right. And um, they're trying to provide a... Historical and technical resource, resource for artistic information—a um, place where you can go and speak to experts and try to get some um, information and dialogue and such um, among collectors and curators and artists and such. So it's a, you know—it's a—they have quite a ambitious um, set of goals that they're trying to. Um, to, to reach and to to achieve, and you know, the big thing is that they, that I really like is they're offering a platform discussion for for discussion of you know all these issues that we deal with, and I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, I sort of skimmed their Hockney things after I did my made my little presentation, and uh, there's a lot of information there refuting Hockney too, where they there again they have a lot of knowledgeable artists who actually practice this type of artwork. And they have right. the ability and the authority to be able to speak on it. So it's yeah. actually, a, a, you know, quite a dynamic organization. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, in the future, maybe they'll be one of the catalysts for getting this actual physical museum of representational art off the ground and established, and maybe get a benefactor like Peggy Guggenheim on board, because basically she sort of propped up the whole modernist movement. And without yeah. her. Enthusiasm and money and such it would probably be a very different art world out there
0: mhm wow. yeah i I actually uh encourage people to go out and look at that art that uh the art renewal center in New york city's website uh because it is a very interesting website um it has a lot of information on it it's it's, it's really good so I, I actually yeah. was looking at it and got lost when I was creating our show outline and our questions, and it was actually got lost, I think, for a couple hours in that, <laughs> in that website.
1: <laughs> I know. The problem is when I get onto these websites, it's like time just ticks away.
0: And <laughs> I just don't have time. the time
1: to, to, to read it all.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's so much good stuff yeah. out there. Right. And, and Joe, I'll include – sorry, Blanche, I was just going to say I'll include a link to not um, actually Joe's website, but also um, the Art Renewal Center's website on on the ammo blog that
1: we do great good
0: go ahead Blanche. um joey we, we also saw on your website that um that you have a link called atelier However, it's not yep. what we think it is can you tell us a little bit about that
1: no it's not that's to trick people and suck them into looking at pictures of my boat <laughs>
0: <laughs> <to surprise.
1: laughs> now, um well for I, I as a kid I grew up on the on the water with like boats and such. I've always been kind of a a, a boat nut. And um when I was in college I had a little uh motorboat and then an, an old old wooden sailboat that my brother and I had sort of restored. But I started taking my paints out in them and doing paintings of the islands and waterways around Boston Harbor. We grew up just south of Boston. And the the you know, the landscape and seascape is just spectacular in in Boston Harbor. If anyone's ever been there, there's there's countless islands and coves and bays and rocks and stuff. And that's one of the things that really got me interested in landscape painting, too, was just, you know, the beauty of the Boston Harbor Islands. So then um, over the years, I've always had a painting boat, something to get out to different places to paint and also to paint from the boat, actual boat itself. So the latest Atelier painting boat, which I named Atelier. It's actually the second Atelier. The first one was a sort of a main lobster boat style cruiser, and this is a sailboat. It's um, it's an old one. It's 1965. It was designed by this designer John Alden in Boston, and it's uh, 44 feet long. And it's a catch, which means it has two masts. And I use it to go wow. out painting um, around Cape Cod and the Elizabeth Islands and Nantucket and Vineyard and all around. And it's great because it gives me a different perspective. I'm painting from the ocean, looking towards the land, and I can also get onto a lot of islands that are inaccessible, except by boat.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And a lot of times, just sailing along, I'm, I'm looking all the time, and, you know, the I tell my wife I'm probably going to die driving off a bridge, looking at a beautiful sunset or a cloud formation or something, yeah. because you know it's it's so beautiful out there. But um, sailing gives me a lot of opportunity to just look at the water and study it and try to analyze it and why it looks the way it does, and why this cloud looks the way it does, and how the sky influences the water, and um, it's just a, a great way to sort of meditate on and contemplate nature and there again sort of the physics of it all like why is this looking like this and why does it look like that and by spending a lot of time trying to analyze nature why it looks the way it does it allows me to recreate nature back in the studio without having any reference actually right now probably more than half of my paintings are completely imaginary they're made up of things that i've seen in the past are just sort of um, topography that i imagine. And with sort of my memory, and my my imagination I recreate I re recreate what I have in my mind on canvas. So by studying nature and trying to analyze it, it really helps me to be able to recreate the same thing that I've been seeing back in the studio. Mm-hmm. And the sailboat is great for that because as I said, I you know, it might take us several hours to sail to a different location the whole time I'm looking at the sky. Or maybe looking at the oh, water. Yeah. So, it, it, there again, cool. it really connects me on a much deeper level to my su- to my subject matter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's fun. Like, a lot of times I'll wake up early in the morning, and the first thing I'll do is, a, you know, maybe two or three-hour plein air sketch from the boat. Um, and if it's a lousy day, it's got some windows I can look out, so I'll, I'll paint out the window. It's a nice day. I'll sit up in the cockpit or on the deck and, and paint. And then I'll wow. often do a sunset painting if there's a beautiful sunset and oftentimes go off during the day with my full plain air kit and um, find a nice place to spend the day painting. So it really increases my accessibility, especially in New England. There's a lot of private property, and a lot of the beachfront is, is owned privately, and it's hard to walk around. So by having a boat, I can get to a lot of islands that are you know publicly owned, and I can get to you know, locations that you can't walk or you can't park your car. And I can also just anchor offshore and paint what I see on the shore. So for New England, it's it's really a, a pretty useful tool. It's not no, like painting in well. Italy, where you can just walk out in fields and paint, and no one seems to bother you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Blanche, we've got uh, about uh, well, about eight minutes left, so this will be your your last question for Joe. Okay. Um, let's see. This is sort of a, a big question. We'll see how you can do it with the time, Joe. You, <laughs> you said that it's important for the landscape to exist um, on an interesting surface in its own right. What techniques do you use to achieve interesting surfaces in your painting?
1: Oh, yeah, you're right. That's this is going to take at least 15 minutes, but I'll That's see a big question,
0: isn't it? <laughs> Tune in um, next time. No, sorry. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's part two.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, one of the things that's important when you're making a painting is it's sort of existing on two levels. It's existing on this illusion level where you're trying to create an illusion of something, space or a still life or an apple or whatever, on the flat surface. But it's also, it exists as a painted object in itself. It's a piece of canvas with paint on it. So mm-hmm. for me, and, you know, there again, I'm, this is for me personal because there are some artists that like a perfectly smooth flat surface but I like the, the surface of the paint to have some interest in itself, so it exists as something really interesting to look at when you're close up to it. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of texture in my painting. It's hard to see from reproductions and such, but there's a lot of texture in my paintings, and I use a lot of glazes. Um, I'll use impasto where I'm just sort of um, piling up the paint really thickly, I'll use scumbling, which is sort of a, a light, sort of milky glaze. Glazes usually indicate putting a darker paint on top of a lighter paint. Where scumbling is a lighter paint on top of a darker paint. Um, I'll use scrafido, uh, which is sort of carving into the paint with the back of my brush or a palette knife, or I have these dental tools that I purchased somewhere after a yard sale or something, and I'll scratch into the paint, whether wet or dry, with that. Um, I use all kinds of tools. Like I, People sometimes say I'm a traditional realist or a traditional painter, but I'm really not because I, I don't strictly use traditional methods. I'll use rollers. Um, I've, there's a plaster taping knife that I use a lot. I'll use sponges. There's this rubber artist wipeout tool that's kind of a rubber. It's almost like a paintbrush with a rubber tip on it. And I'll use that to sort of carve into wet paint a lot and sometimes sharpen up edges and such. So it's really important for me to have that paint surface be really interesting and fun to look at, particularly when you walk up close to it and you can, you know, try to look at how did he do that and what kind of tool did he make to use that. I actually recently dropped off a painting to a dealer and she called me back later and said, there's like all these marks in the water. I guess she didn't understand what I was trying to do, but I was trying to create the texture of the water with with texture rather than painting all these little waves in it. I sort of carved them with this um, tool that I have where I'm trying to create texture to integrate detail rather than painting all the detail. Okay. So I really like uh, playing around with the paint, and it's kind of an experiment. I, there again, I nev- when I start my paintings, I never know how they're going to end up, and how I'm going to get there. And after a certain point, they sort of take on a life of their own where they they don't really even have that much relationship to the initial plein air sketch. They just sort of evolve, and I, in a way, sort of go with the flow. And a lot of times I'll be experimenting with different techniques trying to recreate the look of foliage somewhere or the look of you know a beach with rocks and pebbles and such, and I keep experimenting with different things, trying to find the one that will work. A lot of times I, I know what, what I want it to look like, but I don't know how to get there. And I could use the, sort of the same method I used in the last painting, but it's more fun to try to find something different that works even better than sort of you know relying on the, the same old, same old. So it gives me the opportunity to kind of play around and experiment but still keeps sort of my underlying goals intact, which is sort of, you know, recreating this three-dimensional world on a two-dimensional surface.
0: I'd love to be able to see your paintings in person. There's there's a lot that uh, we can't see in in, uh, photographic images of your paintings.
1: Yeah, and it's really frustrating because whenever I see a, a reproduction of my painting, they don't come out very well. I think one of the issues I have is I use a lot of strong contrast. I'll have very dark painting, uh, dark areas and very light areas. Because there's such a range of light when you go outside. The sun is infin- you know, just so bright and the shadows are so dark that I paint with a full range of values. And a lot of times it's hard for that to be reproduced like in magazines and on websites and such, which is really frustrating. But yeah. What can you do? <laughs>
0: We have to just go see him in person.
1: Yeah, see him in person. That's what you can do.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, we've got a a couple minutes left, about three minutes, and actually uh, closer to four. But, um, Joe, I wanted to, it was my last question, is actually you have a dual major in education and in painting, and we already talked about the fact that you have this wonderful workshop on Cape Cod. Um, If you could instill one thing in your students, either at your workshops or in your weekend with the masters workshops, um, that they walk away with, they take with them. What would that be?
1: Uh, the first thing you have to do is look harder at your subject, and don't paint what you think it looks like. Paint what it actually looks like. Get that. Exa- A lot of times, artists they sort of will paint the stereotype of what they see, and you like to say, well, the sky isn't really that blue. In fact, if I were going to mix up that sky color, I'd start with black and white and maybe hit it with just a tiny tinge of ultramarine or cobalt or something, where a lot of artists will say, oh, the sky's blue, so they'll start with blue, and then they just can't ever get away from that blue, and the sky ends up looking too blue. So the most important thing is to be able to initially paint exactly what it looks like. And once you can do that, then you can move on. You can paint what it feels like. And then you sort of go, you know, keep your eye on the prize, which is go on, going beyond just sort of copying nature and trying to communicate something through nature, using nature as the vehicle. But you can't do that until you can paint exactly what you see and recreate that exactly. And I think a lot of artists skip that first step. It's like the cast drawing and the sight size drawing. Until they brought that back, you know, in, during the last 25 years or so, a lot of artists were skipping that step and they were painting figures and drawing figures that weren't very well painted or drawn Mm -hmm. because they didn't have that underlying ability to do exactly what they see and then go beyond that and create what they're feeling. So I think that would be the big thing. Try to get them to paint things accurately and really analyze, too. And look at the color. Color mixing is so easy if you try to simplify it. You look at the color and there's only four ways to go. Lighter or darker, warmer or cooler? And if mm-hmm. you keep telling yourself, okay, I'm painting this green, should it be a lighter green or a darker green? That answers the value part of the question. And then should it be warmer or cooler? And that will help you answer the color part of the question. Right. And if you simplify it like that in your mind, it, it sort of helps, I think. Um, sometimes you look at the calendar and say, my God, they're two different greens. How how do I get there? And just Sort of close off your analytical part and just ask yourself the question: lighter, darker, warmer, cooler. Right.
0: Yeah, and yeah. we make it sound so easy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that, that's more of a mind game, I guess. The lighter, darker, warmer, cooler. It helps you get over the sort of. Fear. Yeah. Okay. Sure well. Um, yeah, it's
0: it, it's been wonderful talking with you, Joe. Um, we you know we've never met you prior to this and um it's just it was it was really interesting conversation with you this evening and um i look forward to to having you on out in san diego for sure and um again in the future because we have a lot of subjects that we're going to be approaching kind of more in depth as as um as we go back into what uh, our MoR chat was intended to do so I'm sure there's there's a number of things that we could get you to talk about um, for another hour um, <laughs> or two in the future. Sure. So we hope that we can yeah. we can get you back on the show. So.
1: Sure, I'd love to come back on. It was great talking to you all, and I hope you could understand my Boston accent.
0: Yeah, I you know it, it, I could actually, <laughs> so not a, not a problem. And of course, we probably sound very southern to you. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you sound like
1: my favorite aunt from Kentucky.
0: Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you said favorite aunt. So. <laughs> so, all right, well uh, we've come to the end of this. I'm sorry, Blanche. I cut you off, but oh, I was just thanking Joe for being on on with us tonight. We enjoyed it.
1: It
0: was yeah, my it pleasure. was great. Yeah, and uh, our next show will be August fifteenth at seven p.m. Eastern with Jennifer. And again, thanks, Joe, and everybody out there that was listening. Thanks for hanging in with us, and uh, we will catch you next time. Good night, everyone. Good night.
1: Goodbye.